Hello, and welcome to What We May Be, Race and Education. In this week's episode, we'll continue our exploration into how the past and the present of education intersect. We'll be looking at multiple journeys from student to educator, the experiences of an artist who inhabits many rooms, and the insights of a current student. Our interview guests on this episode are Violet Katayan, Sunam Ellis, Anastasia Hyam, and Valerie Curtis-Newton. Let's get started. Hi, Valerie. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, I am a director, educator, a golf player, a playwright, um, an activist, a theater director, most uh, most interested in trying to bring people together to make the world better. Hmm. I worked at places from uh, as big as the Guthrie Theater and as small as, I don't know, pick the smallest space in Seattle, and I've probably done stuff there. Um, I grew up on the East Coast. Um, actually, I grew up a little bit all around. My father was in the Air Force. And then uh, we settled in Connecticut, which is where I was born. And I came out here for grad school and never left. I thought I was going to go back. And then I finished school and looked up uh, two years later. And I had a house, a wife, a cat, and a dog. And I thought maybe I would stay with them. So I'm still here. Valerie, what was your experience as a student like growing up? I was largely, uh, almost exclusively, the only black kid in most of my classes when I was young. There were there were some places we lived where there was a larger black population, but most of the time I was the only one. So I learned to navigate predominantly white spaces, um, and then I got a little bit radicalized when I was in the sixth grade, and I read. Uh, the autobiography of Malcolm X. And then uh, I got radicalized a little more when I went to a predominantly white college, but there was a really, really close and active group of black students there. And then I went to work in the insurance industry. And, uh, and again, I was largely the only black person in most of the circles that I moved in. Uh, but I discovered that I could use my interest in theater to connect to community outside of my work environment. So I've used theater as a way to ground myself and to stay connected uh, to Black people, mm-hmm. even when my the rest of my life isn't as well-centered. This predominance of whiteness that you experienced in your education, um, were there any, like, evolutions or changes as you moved from high school to arts educational programming that you experienced to your BA or your MFA? Did it, did it ever change in any way? Was it always generally the same? Well, you know, there is something about being the only one that makes for uh, as much as you try to avoid it, this notion that you're not like other black people. Hmm. The reason you're in there and the reason they get along with you is that you're not like other black people. And that can undermine your sense of self and of self-confidence because you can be brilliant and be like all the other black people. You can be articulate and be like all the other black people. 
um, you can be smart. Uh, and the idea that um, white people would, quote unquote, not see color means that they have to make some adjustment in order to see me because I am colored. Mm. Um, and uh, it happened uh, in undergrad, the first day of classes. Uh, no, when I was moving in, there was a dean, a black dean, who uh, said to me on meeting me that he didn't, that I must not be on financial aid because he didn't recognize my face or my name. And I also went to class on the first day of class, and I had a teacher before he handed out the syllabus. He looked at me and said he was available to to tutor if I had any difficulty. Um, so there was an underestimation of me in many environments, mm-hmm. and then there was the opposite, which is the um, you know you're you're super exceptional. You're not like any black person we've ever seen before. But I survived it. Mm. How do you think that predominance exists currently for this generation of students? Has it evolved in any way? Has it changed? Well, I think we're at a, a really pivotal moment right now. You know, this notion of racial reckoning is has a lot more students of color and uh, global majority students declaring themselves to be declaring their brilliance, declaring their blackness, their Native Americanness, their Asian Americanness, like they're they're declaring those things and forcing people to deal with them uh, on the basis of those things, not in not in avoidance of them. And so they're changing the system little bit by little bit. You know, mm-hmm. the the department that I work in at the University of Washington this summer released an anti racist action plan, largely the result of students calling for this kind of racial reckoning. So I think that the environment is changing because the students are changing. We'll be back with more of Valerie's interview throughout the episode. Up next, Anastasia Hyam. Hello, Anastasia. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, yeah, uh, I am Seattle born and raised. Um, I grew up here in um in a theater family. Um, my parents met doing a show. Um, and so I did a lot of theater growing up here, um, education programs. Um, I went to the center school, which is actually a small public school in the armory in the Seattle center. Um, and, um, I was actually an education uh, intern at Seattle shakes, um, during my senior year of high school. Um, and then I went to Whitman College, where I majored in sociology, but did a lot of theater while I was there. Um, and I did an education internship at Seattle Children's Theater during one of the summers that I was back. Um, and then after graduation, I came back to Seattle to act professionally. Um, and um, one of the first, I think the first job actually that I had out of college um, was a summer job with Seattle Shakespeare Company. Um with their Camp Bill program, um, sort of acting in a assistant director, camp counselor role. Um, and then, uh, as I continued to act uh, in Seattle, I also continued to work with shakes in that kind of capacity, sort of moving up into teaching movement and, um, doing some directing for short shakes and event- eventually some directing for Camp Bill. 
Um, and I also got involved with the, um, Seattle Shakes educational tour, um, for three years, um, traveling all over the state acting, um, and also interacting with students, uh, in a teaching capacity that way. And I, I feel like that's one of the most, um, impactful and important parts of my journey as an actor, um, was that tour. Um, and, uh, and I also performed with um, Seattle Shakes' Wooden O and on their main stage. And um, in the past few years, I've sort of been moving, um, as well as doing acting, moving more into also doing directing and um, working with students as more of sort of my main thing. Um, right now, you know, uh, I'm at kind of a transitional point, which I think a lot of people are um, in what my career is going to be looking like as it goes forward and how much it's going to include theater or not. but. Um, I was really grateful this summer to get to direct uh, Camp Bill virtually. Um, uh, and we did a Midsummer Night Stream on Zoom with students. And that was a really wonderful three-week process. Um, yeah, so that's me. Thank you. You already were talking about it. I just want to go into it a little deeper. Um, can you talk to me a little bit more about your experience as a director with Short Shakes and Camp Bill interacting with students? Um, yeah, it's it's always a huge joy working with students. Um, growing up, uh, you know, being a, a student in these kind of type of programs, um, I know how much I enjoyed it then. And so getting to sort of be on the other side of it is really magical and getting to watch the way that students grow as you have them just, just sometimes even over the weeks of camp, but also as you have them for multiple years, um, seeing them grow up and seeing them get more confident, um, is really amazing. Um, seeing them surprise you how much they're capable of. Um, and, uh, it's just really fun. Um, and, uh, and getting to see, um, getting to work on the text with people who are maybe pretty new to it and seeing them go, Oh, when they really get something or find something that you never saw in it before. And, um, and also getting to see with short shakes, particularly they get to connect with the main stage cast, um, and be like, Oh, you know, you're playing Portia. I'm playing Portia and let's talk about the character. And that's really, um, that's really a special opportunity and a really a really fun thing to see. Yeah, it sounds amazing being able to, to, like you're saying, see their not only growth right in the in the arts and specifically in Shakespeare, but also just you know as kids turning into young adults. That's really amazing. Side by side to that, have you seen the program evolve or grow in any way, either or? Uh, yeah, I would I would say so. Um, I think that the um, you know looking back from when I was like assistant directing, it was, you know, quite a few years ago now, I think that the commitment to like concept in the shows and the, and the production has grown stronger. Um, I think, uh, Michelle Burst is doing a really amazing job with the kind of sets and spaces that the students have access to and what they get to build, um, together, which is part of the, the camp build production, um, in particular. Um, and I think, um, Especially, you know, I've worked with Samara Lehrman and Zandi Carlson and seeing their commitment to concept and the really fun kinds of like, this is a circus uh, comedy of errors, or this is a, you know, old school Hollywood Twelfth Night, um, that those kind of concepts have, are really, really strong. Um, and I, I also think, um, I think I've seen 
a change in, I think I've seen more kindness um, among the students in um, as the program has gone on. And I don't know, you know, if that comes from a sort of general generational thing or a, um, or it's specific to the program, but it's really, I think that the way that students work together and how they respect each other and how they, um, how, just how they are with each other and around new language about things like gender expression and new protocols around like, um, staged intimacy and like, just, you know, asking like, Hey, can I touch you for the scene or like how that kind of thing? I think, um, that's a big, a big change that I've seen, um, is that, that sort of commitment to each other. I have a lot of hope for Gen Zers. I see that, uh, that kindness as well. Throughout these interviews, I've had a lot of conversations with people about inclusive spaces, um, you know, in, in, in different mediums throughout various institutions and organizations. And I'm just curious, uh, you know, in this capacity, in the room of, of teaching, you know, students and youth about Shakespeare, what, what kind of inclusive spaces have you seen or not seen? Has that ever been something that has been part of the dialogue in the room? Yeah. Um, I think somewhere that I've, I've definitely noticed, um, inclusion and we I touched on this already a little bit, but is that is around um, gender and gender expression and pronouns. Mm -hmm. And I think that's been, you know, maybe one of the most visible changes um, is having non-binary students in the program. And um, I think hopefully really honoring their expression and their journeys and their pronouns and, um, and thinking carefully in casting choices about, um, how best to, um, to sort of serve what they are doing in their lives. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, yeah, so that's sort of the first thing that, that, um, that strikes me. Um, and also I, I think, um, you know, I don't, I don't want to, I don't know the statistics exactly. Um, just on an observational level, I think that, um, I believe that the midsummer that we did this summer, um, did have the, the highest number of students of color in the cast, at least in the productions that I have worked on, um, with like short shakes and camp bill. So you've definitely seen like an active shift in, in that demographic, um, something that's growing. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. You know, I, I'm not involved in the sort of outreach side of things and those kind of conversations that are happening behind the scenes as to how to, um, encourage that, but I do think I'm seeing the effects of it. Mm. Seeing the effects of it in the room. What, what impact have you seen on, on all the kids or the students or the young adults as it's growing and in comparison to before when maybe there wasn't diversity or inclusion? Yeah. Um, I think just this summer hearing, you know, on the first day hearing like everybody sort of, Hey, who are you? What's your story? Kind of our opening introduction. I was like, Oh, I'm hearing some stories that are different from what I've heard in past years. And I think the students are, are hearing different things than they would in, in past years and hopefully recognizing stories that are like their own, um, in some cases and stories that are new to them. And I think, that is really important and was kind of a great, um, experience to have this summer. Um, I think some of the impacts that it has are things that we won't 
see because they're they're internal, you know, to the students. They're mm-hmm. down the road for them that that will be that they'll maybe realize how important that that was. But um, I know if on my end, it is um, you know I mentioned casting a little before, but it is something that has impacted me in terms of doing casting. Is like I want to think really carefully about what any casting I'm doing is saying. Um, you know, and that's, that's always a concern I know in a professional sphere because that's very visible and that's very much, you know, you're, you're casting from this wide pool and trying to figure out what story it is you want to tell. But even in our little pool of actors that's already been chosen because they're in the program, um, and that, you know, it's the, a wider audience is not going to see this. It is really important to, to go like, what, what story are we telling the students about who they can be um, and who, you know, what characters and um, what qualities they can take on. And so um, that's something that on my side of it, I know is, has been really important to me. Mm. For students in particular, it feels like a, a deep cultivation of empathy too, you know? Yeah. You know, hopefully what we're doing in these camps is, you know, stepping into other people's shoes and, and yeah, and exercising our empathy with our characters, but hopefully we're also doing that with the other people that we're working with and having more diversity and inclusion is, is only going to be good for that on the artistic side and the, the, the human side. The value of that kind of can't be overstated, um, that exercising empathy and, um, and also these camps particularly where we're working with these very, these classic stories, right? This classic language that's been, that we see as this this archetype, this, these stories that have been really important to our language and our way of thinking about the world in ways that we probably don't even always realize. And we have these archetypes and historically we've thought of these archetypes and these characters and these stories as being, um, mostly very white and very, um, you know, sort of the type of people who would enjoy these or see these as mostly being like upper class or academic, or these stories have been seen, you know, whether accurately or not, as a kind of stuffy. And so it's always been a value of Shakespeare education to sort of dispel that and to to help students, you know, not be afraid of Shakespeare. But I think that that's so redoubled by by being like, this is for everyone. You know, this these characters can be played by so many different types of people and um and these words and these stories belong to everyone. And that instilling that idea at a very young age, I think, will will just really do a lot as these students grow up and continue to be involved in the arts in whatever way they are, whether they're an artist working on productions or they're um, a patron, whatever it is, they, they already just know in their core that these stories and these characters are for everybody. And that hopefully expands out to a lot of other art and a lot of other life. Um, but yeah, starting, starting early with, um, with inclusion. So it just becomes, it's just a no brainer. It's just part of how this has always been. Mm. Thanks Anastasia for your time and insights. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on. Here's Valerie. I want to pick your brain a little bit and your thoughts on diversity as a means of decolonization when it is constantly defined 
by white institutions and those metrics of success? Um, I think that that the the question has, there's a reason that the language has changed from diversity to equity. Mm -hmm. It's not enough just to have lots of different kinds of people. We're recognizing that the thing we really want is to be treated equitably. Mm -hmm. And uh, and if they're not going to treat us equitably or arrange the institution to treat us equitably, then there's no point in being engaged. Mm -hmm. So that's what I think. I think that we're only now learning the right levers to pull. We've been pulling a bunch of levers, but they've been the wrong ones. Having a bunch of people of color doesn't necessarily make for a more equitable environment, especially if the people of color are silenced inside the system. Mm. What about in terms of accountability? How do we hold institutions and organizations accountable for that level of diversity that is that is equitable and not defined by uh, a white lens or, or, or metrics of success that don't apply or support black, brown, BIPOC people? I think that um, I've been talking a lot uh, right now about the need for three things. I need to know who to complain to, who can make change. I need a guarantee that there will not be retaliation for demanding change. Mm. And then we need brave, compassionate, courageous people to tell the truth. And that's what accountability looks like. Up next, Sunam Ellis. Hi, Sunam. Tell us a little bit about yourself. I'm Sunam Ellis. I'm an actor, an educator here in Seattle. And until COVID hit us, I was doing about five or six shows a year. Um with various theaters in town um, from the time I graduated from UW, University of Washington, from their MFA program. Um, I was really, really lucky and just delved into a lot of work and have been really uh, felt blessed to be invited into a lot of rooms. And in that, I've also expanded to do a little bit of directing and um, some teaching of of in elementary schools, at the university level, at at church, at different areas. So it's been really wonderful that I've been able to share the things that I've been taught and share them with communities that might not always get that information or get to play in that way. So that's a little bit of my story. I love you. I love all the things you do. Oh, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, As an educator, a director, an actor, what kind of impact have you seen diversity or the lack of diversity having in those rooms? I I feel that the more diversity that you have, the more that you have to expand yourself to take in different points of view, to take in different experiences, and it increases your empathy. And when I see a lack of diversity, I think we can get pigeonholed into thinking that the world only thinks one way or in, with narrow um narrow blinders on. And so having diversity and even just teaching in different communities, being able to look at different communities and seeing different needs that come up in the different communities is just a important reminder that there is more out there than what we've experienced. And no matter how 
broad our experience has been, there's more. And being open to the fact that there's more and almost seeking it so that we don't miss it when it's in front of us. Because I think so many of us miss it. It's right there. And we don't actually take the time to look. And I think in today's society, because we're in the Twitter world and doing things in such short bursts that our attention doesn't just sit and um, linger in what we're experiencing or the places that we're at. And so I think just inviting ourselves to be more present when we're in different spaces and looking for the things that might be offered to us. And, you know, also just the notion, right, that diversity, uh, yes, it's being in the room, but it is as well a redistribution of power. Yes. Um, What have you seen in terms of that across the board with the places you've worked with? I feel that in a lot of theaters, um, there is a desire to put POC BIPOC on their stages. Unfortunately, it's just that. That's the minimum, just to get them on the stages. So they'll use BIPOC as filler. But then I feel that those are the people who grace the posters, who grace their hallways so that there's a pat on the back, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's just this exploitation. There's this take of what they think can make those ticket sales that can make them look like they are doing the work, but the work isn't actually being done because you look at the power in a theater room who has the equity contracts, um, who, uh, whose voice is listened to when we're talking through a scene, who are we all turning towards to find more information? And yes, sometimes it's that person who has experience, but sometimes it's just that person who's used to being listened to in the room. Right. And so that might not, um, creating a time when someone says, no, wait, let's actually broaden this up because I don't think we've heard from all the voices and just taking the space to saying, hey, this person is saying something I want to hear more and making that invitation known. And I don't think that's done enough uh, in the room. Uh, I know I've had times because I am half Korean and I've had times when I've asked about incorporating that into a character and in the moment, having people of power say, oh, that's very interesting, but that's all I get. I get that interesting, but there's nothing incorporated into character when it's not something that would be terribly difficult to do, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Hey, can I have, uh, since you're kind of right now looking for styles of a teacup, what if you make sure you look at teacups that have Asian design on it? just a little bit of detail that would say, yes, we're paying attention to the details beyond just, look, we have a person uh, with a different skin tone on the stage that we're going beyond that. And I don't think that people actually take the time to invest in those opportunities. It helps me be a better artist. It lets me know that I can bring my whole self in instead of trying to figure out what the white pure white version of me looks like so that I can get the next job. So I don't, I don't know what part of me to bring in a room because I don't know that I'm going to be heard or seen or appreciated as someone who has um, this Korean heritage that I bring that in. 
But I feel that sometimes there's this energy of, we don't need that part. That's interesting, but we don't want that for the story. And I don't know all the time why that isn't invited in or just the discussion of how can we bring that in? What could that mean for our story? Uh, Which I think could bring out much more interesting depth. Absolutely. It just makes for richer storytelling. Yes, absolutely. 100%. What are, you know, what are some ways we can hold organizations accountable as a community for this level of diversity that that we're talking about? We need our, our allies to kind of stand beside us and say, we want to see more diversity. If just a bunch of BIPOC email and say, we want more diversity, uh, I, I don't think it's going to have the same impact because I think it's easier for those leaders to say, oh, that's just you, mm, right? Mm-hmm. That's not our all our audience. And we can we want to make sure we cater to a more all we want to cater to diversity. They can throw that back at us. So we need to have allies and uh, BIPOC saying we want to see that diversity on the stage and we want to see it at every level in your process. There needs to be, I think there needs to be, um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Transparency. Transparency in where the voices are invited into the process so that we can see that it's not just at that tail end where so many powerful decisions have already been made. Um, Without that transparency, without those people in power holding on. I mean, if they just hold on to it so tightly, you can't see it. It's my thing. I want to do it my way. Then of course we can't get in. Of course there's no room. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's ego on their part, first of all. Um, But if they're, if they just want stories to be told for them and their people, then I think that let's have that reflected in your mission statement. Let's have that reflected in your posters. If that's what you want, stop exploiting us. And maybe the voices, those few of us who feel like we can stand up and say, no, this doesn't work. Say, I will not be on your poster. You are not allowed to use my image until your company reflects what I can bring to that poster, which is again, me again, knowing that that is a really difficult decision. Um, And I have been in a position where I've talked to an artistic director and said, hey, some poor choices were being made um, and went in with the fear of this could be the end for me. <laughs> uh, I know that's scary, but I feel like if enough of us come in and say we're done, I I feel like we will force their hand. Mm-hmm. How do you hope that the work you do impacts young people and students? I... I hope it gives them permission to use their voices. Um, and I I try and use my voice in a way where I'm still hoping for humanity to win the day. At least I try. I know I fail. There are days when I get so mad and I'm like, actually, my choice in my brain right now is just to punch you in the face. Like, that's like where I am. But I work really hard to try and say, but what I want to leave in the world is hoping for your humanity and talking it through. And I have found that now that I have gotten a little more established, I have to look out at younger people and people who 
haven't had the experience quite yet to make sure that they are finding their voice and finding that they too are worthy. That just because I've been in more rooms so far, just that's just time. We get so caught up in our own little bubble of it's just us and I have to get my lines and I have to do my story. And if we have the capacity, some people don't, if you have that capacity to stop and look and see if everyone's with you. And if they're not, help by just being present or saying, uh, is there anything I can do to make your day better today or something? And I feel like I'm being like Pollyanna or naive sometimes, but that's how I try and move through the world. Uh, Just because it's it's such a hard world, I think we got to help and hold on to each other where we can. Mm, That's beautiful. Thank you, Sunam, for your thoughts and your time. Yeah, thank you. Valerie, what are your hopes for the current generation of students? That they are brave, compassionate, courageous, and confident. That they carry that into every space that they enter. Up next, Violet Katayan. Hi, Violet. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, my name's Violet Katayan. Um, I use they, them pronouns. Um, I'm 17. I write things. I write poetry and plays and prose. Um, I also act and direct things. Um, I have a small theater company. It's called Ghost Ship Productions. Um, We do like devised and scripted performances by and for young weirdos. Amazing. I love that. (laughs) Um, Is this a new company? Yeah, um, I started it last spring, I think. Cool. What made you want to start your own theater company? Um, So I'd been doing educational theater for a long time, and I really liked it. Um, But then as I got into high school, I started to like age out a little bit. Um, And I also had like really specific ideas about um, the plays that I wanted to do. Like I wanted to write my own plays and direct plays in the ways that I was thinking about them. Um, And I also like, I wanted to do theater, um, but I wasn't ready for professional theater, you know? Um, I wanted to keep that educational theater feeling of like just doing a play with my friends in a short amount of time and having fun. What what about those ideas, right, of uh, the type of play that you wanted to do and be a part of? How did that differ from some of the educational uh, types of plays or scripts that you, that you might have been doing with either Seattle Shakespeare or any other programming that you took part of? Um, mostly, I was, I'm just, like, excited about doing more experimental theater. Like, the plays that I did as part of educational theater were, like, just traditionally you get a script and then you like memorize the lines and perform it, you know? Um, and I did enjoy that, but I also was like, I wanted to like add in some elements of improv and some elements of like creating, um, a piece of theater as a community, you know, not just having a director who tells actors what to do, you know, everybody having, um, the, like a similar amount of agency. Super cool. So like really ensemble based. Yes, exactly. Amazing. Um, Well, I look forward to seeing what y'all create. Yeah, I'm excited to get back to it once we can do live theater again. Circling back to, you know, these these programs that you did uh, that were educational. Can you talk a little bit about what made you want to take part in them? Yeah. 
Um, so part of the thing was, um, I was like weirdly very excited about Shakespeare since I was pretty little. Um, I, there was a, um, production company led by, uh, a teenager that I, I saw her do a lot of Shakespeare plays, um, back when I lived in Boston. Um, and I was like, wait, I really, really want to do that too. Um, (laughs) so like, I, I was just very interested in Shakespeare and performing. Um, I've just like always, I don't know. I, I've wanted since I was really young to be part of theater and performing and being on stages. I just like it a lot. <laughs> cool. Um, when you attend these programs or, or even like in school, like how often do you have discussions about how racism or anti-racism play into like the text or the world you're creating or any kind of facet? Um, not very often. Um, I didn't, I didn't experience a lot of those conversations in, um, the plays I was in, unless the play that we were working on, um, was specifically talking about race and racism. Mm -hmm. Do you want to have those conversations more? Do you think they're important? Yes, I do. I think they're really important. Um, I think that it's important in Shakespeare, especially um, in like educational Shakespeare settings where um, people are often learning about Shakespeare for the first time, um, because Shakespeare is like historically, you know, very white and he's part of the, you know, white Western canon. Um, so I think that it's really important to learn about um, the parts of Shakespeare that are, you know, racist and stuff. Um, because um, unless you're like, deep into Shakespeare, I think that like, just the the text um, standing alone in like a, you know, more historically, like an Elizabethan <laughs> production, you know, is, is like, it's so much less relevant to everybody than if you're explicitly saying like, here is a theme um, from this thing that this guy wrote 400 years ago, and here's how it connects to things that we're thinking about right now. And also, I think that it's just important for anti-racism to be part of all the different kinds of education that you do, you know, because racism in America is so institutional, you know, so it like, it does touch like all of the parts of all our lives. Totally. Um, what is what has school been like for you? Like, during this COVID climate? Um, so I um, was homeschooled until last year when I started doing full-time running start. Um, so there's a lot of parts of school now that are honestly not super different for me um, because I'm already very used to um, motivating my own learning at home. Um, but it is also very stressful. <laughs> Um, learning, like, you know, learning how to do things in this new way with the the online school and the not being in contact with people as much, um, hard times. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. What What are your hopes for, you know, how that will develop or resolve or get better? Um, I mean, I... Mm-hmm. I just like on a on a basic level, I just want to see my friends again, you know. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Me too, Violet. <laughs> Me too. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for your thoughts and your time. Yeah. Valerie, what is your vision of the future of education? 
um, I'm really, really interested in the mission to create compassionate, active, engaged citizens. I want I want to make students who are curious, who are engaged, and who are smart and strategic, who will understand how all the pieces fit together. And I think that we can do that, but we have to start young and we have to make that the mission from the very beginning. Right now, we're super, super focused on how everyone's going to have a job. Mm-hmm. But we're moving into an environment where automation and technology are making jobs more and more uh, difficult to get because there are fewer and fewer of them. So then it's how do we innovate? How do we create new things, new ways to work, new gifts to give? And uh, in order to get that done, we need to have firm, quote unquote, soft skills, the ones we stopped teaching 20 years ago. Mm. Can you speak a little bit more to that, those soft skills? Yeah, we need to know how to listen. Mm. We need to know how to be resilient, how to fail and get up and keep going. We need to know how to collaborate, which doesn't mean capitulation. We need to know how to lead, which also does not mean compromise. Mm. Um, We have to teach people to see problems and then envision solutions. You know, uh, what we've been doing in the last generation is we've been teaching people to check boxes, Mm -hmm. teaching them to take tests, but not necessarily teaching them the the real concepts, the depth of the concepts that are being tested. Mm. And we have to get back in that way. We have to get back to sort of more old school, liberal arts, educate, educating. And it's a very, very, clear battle that's going on right now between vocational training and liberal arts training Mm -hmm. between STEM and STEAM. Um, I would like to see more STEAM education um, because I think the arts teach the soft skills maybe better than any other um, set of tools. Mm. What are your thoughts on on incorporating, you know, that these soft skills, that kind of liberal arts approach to uh, institutional forms of learning that that are like already established, you know, because the difficulty is there, right? When um, you have state mandated curriculum or requirements, but you also want to be empathetic to um, the kids that are in the room, right? The the people that are there. What are your thoughts of that? Like incorporating that practically? Well, you know, again, I go back to the arts. You have to know your audience, mm-hmm. right? And uh, if we stop treating our students as consumers and treat them more like audience, we'll do a better job of meeting them where they are. But we do right now. We teach. We treat our students like consumers. Hmm. Um, you don't have to learn in this way if you don't want to, because you're paying your tuition. So I'm going to, I'm going to treat you the way I'm going to teach you the way you want to be taught. Even if it's not the most efficient way of teaching a particular subject. I, I have this happen often with students who want to tell me how to teach them. And I want to teach how to manage their expectations so they can learn from what it is I'm offering. Hmm. It doesn't mean I never shift to the student's needs, 
but I prefer to shift to their needs and not to their wants. Mm. And in the consumer mentality, it's a lot about what I want and it, it, it ignores what is needed. Mm. Well, thank you, Valerie. Thank you for your time and insights. You're welcome. I'm glad to have spent some time with you and I hope it's a useful conversation as part of your series. That's all for today. This series is a fundraiser for Seattle Shakespeare Company's educational department. If you enjoyed this content and would like to learn more about Seattle Shakespeare Company's educational programs, or if you're able to support us with a donation, please visit seattleshakespeare.org slash education celebration. We'll be back next week with another episode. So subscribe wherever you get this podcast from.